Elohi Abraham, Elohi Yitzhak, Elohi Yaakov, Elohi Yeshua, Mishikainu, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, God of Yeshua, our Messiah. We come before you today, and Lord, we're looking for you to speak to us. We're looking for you to change us, Lord, and to encourage us in your ways. So, Father, I pray that you would breathe upon us by your Ruach and bless each one. And we ask it for Shem Yeshua, and everyone said, Amen. This week, as you know, we've been going through our message series based on the book of Acts. And um, this week, I will be highlighting a few principles from Acts chapter 10. And many of us are familiar with Acts chapter 10. And if we are, um, I'm sure the Lord will speak to you. And if we're not, uh, the Lord will uh, encourage you as well. This chapter is about the Besorah being extended to the Gentiles. This chapter challenges religious restrictions that keep people separated, not only in the ancient world, but also in our modern society today. Um, I won't say where, but uh, I was at a a, a meeting of Jewish believers, and um, we were waiting online to get into a particular meeting, and... um, uh, the one of the leaders of the meeting was basically profiling the crowd, saying, you know, uh, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? You know, what's your last name? Are you Jewish? And, um, and the people who weren't Jewish weren't allowed to come in. Um, and, okay, you know, that's their policy and that's how they run their things. Fine. Um, doesn't sit particularly well with me, but, you know, that's my perspective. But I want to show you and, and glean from the word of God, his heart for all people. Um, Yeshiyahu, Isaiah chapter 49, it says, So now says, or so now Adonai says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Yaakov back to him, to have Israel gathered to him, so that I will be honored in the sight of Adonai, my God having become my strength. He has said, it is not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Yaakov and to restore the offspring of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. So we see several important things here in this text that are germane to Acts chapter 10. First, the servant mentioned here by the prophet is sent to bring Israel back, right, to God. So the servant mentioned cannot be Israel, correct? If the servant was meant to bring Israel back, Israel can't bring Israel back. So the servant is speaking not of Israel as the rabbis, the the modern day rabbis would say, but that servant is speaking of Mashiach, right? The other important thing that we know uh, from the text is the, the text is speaking about the servant of the Lord, Yeshua. Um... We also see here that God is saying that the servant, the Messiah, 
will also bring salvation to the nations. So we know how important our people Israel is in the heart of God. But what it's saying here is that not only is my servant sent to Israel, but my servant is also to be a light to the nations. So, Because God's heart is for all people. So the Gentile nations are very much a concern in the sight and heart of Hashem. Now, I want to turn your attention to the Brit Kaddishah, Luke chapter 2. And it says, there was in Jerusalem a, a man named Shimon. This man was... This man was a tzaddik. He was devout. He waited eagerly for God to comfort Israel, and the Ruach HaKodesh was upon him. If someone could get me some water, I would appreciate that. It had been revealed to him by the Ruach HaKodesh that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah of Adonai. Prompted by the Ruach, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child Yeshua to do for him what the Torah required, Shimon took him in his arms, made a brachat to God, and said, Now, Adonai, according to your word, your servant is at peace. As you let him go, for I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that will bring revelation to the goyim and glory to your people, Israel. So we see all the way through now, not only ancient Israel, but first century Israel, the Jewish man is understanding that the Mashiach, the servant of God, was to bring glory to Israel, right? But also salvation and revelation of God to the nations. Again, let me say it, that God's heart is concerned for absolutely our people, but also the nations of the earth. With that foundation laid, I see my water coming. Thanks. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, let's all take a sip. If you don't have any, I'll take some for you. <laughs> That's better. Got to wet the whistle, you know. It's dry. It's summertime. I don't know. If you should drink. I drink, try to drink. There he goes. This is Daniel. I try to drink about a gallon of water a day. Just water. And let me tell you, I go to the bathroom a lot, but I'm very hydrated. So it's free. It's a freebie. <clears throat> With that foundation laid, we end up at our text here in Acts chapter 10. The Messiah has come. Israel is responding, right? Good things are happening amongst the Yehudim. Um, Messianic Judaism is the happening thing in first century Israel. The Messiah has turned everything on its head. Baruch Hashem. Thousands are coming to faith in Yeshua. Jewish people, Kohanim, Leviim, are seeing that Mashiach has come. Wow. It's exciting. God is fulfilling what he promised. Wow. But as of Acts chapter 10, not one Gentile has been part of the picture. It's been an exclusive situation. 
it's not been to the Yehudi first. It's been to the Yehudi only so far. But things are about to change here in Acts chapter 10. So let's look and see how people of all ethnicities can find God. And my first point from Acts 10 is how to get the attention of God. Well, let's read a little bit. From Acts 10, there was a man. It always starts with a man, doesn't it? There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman army officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. Shout out to the Italians. He was a devout man, a God-fearer. That should always go well over Long Island. I always say on Long Island, you're either Italian or Jewish, or both. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household. He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, around three o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, Cornelius. And he stared at the angel and was terrified, as you can imagine. What is it, sir? He asked. Your prayers, replied the angel, and your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he has you on his mind. Now, folks, is there anything better than that? That God would have you on his mind. Wow, is that not a flatter or what? That's flattering, to say the least. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, here Cornelius, God has Cornelius, this Gentile Roman soldier, on his mind. That's what we want to be, right? We want God to have us on his mind. And as it usually does, it starts with a man, specifically a man who has a heart after God. And in this passage, Cornelius is called a God-fearer, right? So who is this man? Don't we want to know a little bit about him? Who is he? And what is a God-fearer? What does it mean by God-fearer? Well, the Roman army drew regiments from throughout its empire. The Italian regiment was one drawn from Italy. Caesarea... The region's largest and most strategic port city was the home of the Roman governor, was the home of the governor, and it was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. And therefore, it was the home of the Roman governor and the home base of his military garrison. At full force, the Italian regiment, or any other Roman regiment for that matter, would have six thousand soldiers and it was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 each so this guy was a macher right in the army he was over 6,000 men that's not a small thing a God-fearer and the Greek word is phobumenos tontheon that's what the, the Greek is and I know that means a lot to you so I just want to tell you And it means one who fears God. It's regarded by most scholars as a technical term describing a Gentile who attached himself to Judaism but chose not to undergo formal conversion. 
which included circumcision and public immersion. This class of Gentiles, known in Judaism as proselytes of the gate, was quite large here in the first century time. They were attracted to the nobility of Jewish worship and to the truth of the one true God who had revealed himself in the Bible, but for various reasons they did not convert to Judaism. Okay? The Encyclopedia Judaica in 1971 stated that in the diaspora there were an increasing number, perhaps millions by the first century, of Sebumeno or God-fearers Gentiles who had not gone the whole route towards conversion. David Flusser of Hebrew University fame wrote in 1976 that the existence of these many God-fearers reveals the Hellenistic Judaism, that Hellenistic Judaism had almost succeeded in making Judaism a world religion in the literal sense of the words. So, what is a first century God fearer? The characteristics of a first century God fearer, like Cornelius, would be one, they are Gentiles interested in Judaism, but not converts, and the men are not circumcised. Secondly, they are found in some numbers in the synagogues of the diaspora from Asia Minor to Rome. And thus, um, we have Cornelius from Rome. Three, the God-fearer is traditionally understood and is particularly significant for students of the New Covenant because it was from the ranks of the God-fearers that the early Messianic community supposedly had recruited many of its members. And as you can see, and as we know from the story, Cornelius and his whole house come to faith in Yeshua the Messiah. Right here. So, in Judaism, non-Jewish folks were to follow the Noahide laws, right? And the Noahide laws are seven laws considered by rabbinic tradition as the minimal moral duties required by the Bible on all men. While Jewish people are obligated to observe the whole Torah... Every non-Jew is considered a son of the covenant of Noah, and he who accepts these obligations is considered a righteous person or a tzaddik who is guaranteed a place in the world to come. So the seven Noahide laws as enumerated are this. Do not deny God. Do not blaspheme God. Do not murder do not engage in incestuous, adulterous, or homosexual relationships. Do not steal. Do not eat of a live animal. And establish courts or a legal system to ensure obedience to these laws. So Cornelius was devout. He was a God-fearer. He was obviously one who had Jewish sensibilities. His household believed the same way. In the one true God of the Tanakh, he was a man of prayer. And he had a heart for Jewish people. I want to say this. This is the new covenant pattern of Gentile believers. One, we're seeing that they have Jewish sensibilities. Two, we're seeing they don't become Jewish. And in many ways, they don't even have a desire to become Jewish. But they 
have a love for Jewish people. As you, they, doesn't that make sense? You're reading a Jewish book written by a Jewish God. He sends a Jewish Messiah. And you would be grateful for these things that you received. And so you would develop a heart, right, for not only the Jewish God, the Jewish Messiah, but the Jewish people as well. And that's how it was intended to go and continue. But not only that, like I said, he had a scriptural orientation that was Jewish, even though he wasn't Jewish, or he didn't even have a desire to convert to Judaism formally. So, to get the attention of God, what's needed isn't that you have to be Jewish. Cornelius wasn't. What's needed is that you need a heart for God. You need a heart for his people. I have a hard time with this, folks, that people could say, oh, I love God, Yeshua, even if they call him by his English name, fine, yet have a dislike for God's people, a dislike for God's ways, a dislike for God's Torah, God's commandment. It doesn't seem to equal out. A heart for God, a heart for his people, a heart for his word and his ways. This was Cornelius. He had a heart for God. He had a heart for God's people. He had a heart for God's word. And he had a heart for God's ways. It's stated here in the text plainly in the form of two things, specifically giving. It's funny how that comes up this week. Giving and prayer. Is, that's an odd combination. Out of all the things that could define someone or get God's ear, it tells us two things about Cornelius. Giving and prayer. Put Cornelius on God's mind. God has heard your prayer and remembered your acts of charity. Who would think it's that simple? It's got to be more complicated than that. Certainly it's got to be more complicated than that. Doesn't seem to be. Not here anyway. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's where your heart could be found. Your heart and your treasure, that's where the giving, your heart and your treasure are always connected. Your heart and your treasure. You know, parents, I've seen even tough parents, stern parents, 
softly like that over their little baby girl comes over and says, Daddy, Daddy, can you buy me a bicycle? And Daddy, okay for your birthday. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Right? And God, Cornelius' heart and treasure were in God. And it was manifested in his giving to God's people. It's manifested in prayer to God. Cornelius showed by his giving his heart for God. And someone said this about giving, stewardship. Stewardship is God's way of raising people, not man's way of raising money. Think about that. God's way of raising people, not man's way of raising money. Is that not what happened here? God was looking for and found a man, a faithful man in the area of giving. Someone, I'll quote this man, said this, giving is a spiritual issue, in fact. A relational issue with God. In order to truly yield to God's ownership of our possessions, we must evaluate carefully what may be the most telling evidence of our stewardship, the part that we give. Just as we decide on what we spend on appliances or how much we'll put in a savings or retirement account, we must also have to decide how much money we will give to God. And that's a decision you make and I make. And it says something about us. Even to give nothing is a conscious decision. Stewards are accountable in each decision to please the owner. Many see the, responsible, the responsibility of giving as a burden. How sad is that in light of Rav Shaul's reminder that God loves a cheerful giver? Giving is actually a relational decision, says this man. He goes on to say, in the process of making giving decisions we really establish our agreement with God about our faith and our relationship with him. This is exactly what is happening here in this passage. Cornelius is not doing this a one-time thing. This was his habit of giving to God's people. As we continually decide to give, we constantly affirm how much we value our relationship to God as his children. Wow, who would have thought that giving makes God perk up like that? But it does. It made Yeshua perk up with the widow's might. You see, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is found. Prayer is also indicative of a heart for God. Since prayer is communicating with God and communication is vital to any good and healthy relationship, it shows that Cornelius had a good connection. Say connection. Connection. Say connection. 
Notice I'm not saying religious experience. I'm not saying religion. I'm not saying, saying he came to shul. I'm saying a connection with God. Prayer is connection. Prayer isn't words. Because you could pray with very little, minimal to no words. You could just pray in your heart. Prayer is connection. Say connection. I want you to get that because Cornelius, this Gentile, this Roman, this outsider was connected to the God of Israel. Someone said, the fact is, prayer is never easy. True prayer is as demanding, at least as demanding, as the carrying on of a business conversation or the writing of a letter. It purports to be a communication with a listener. Ian Bounds said, much time with God is the secret of all successful praying. Say that. Much time. Prayer, which is felt as a mighty force, is the immediate or immediate product of much time spent with God. Our short prayers owe their point and efficiency, listen to this, to the long ones that have preceded them. Ah, our short prayers are because of our long prayers, our times at home. You know those times We're on your face before God. And you're saying, God, I need you. God, I seek your face. God, answer me and speak to me. And it's not a two-second prayer. But then you could come into a prayer meeting and pray a minute or two, and God answers those prayers. But it's because, not of that one prayer, but because of the many prayers, the much time spent with God. Friends, we live in an hour where we want to have a relationship with God without spending the time. Husbands, try that with your wife. I dare you. Relationship void of time spent, let's face it, is no relationship at all. Honey, I'm working late today and every day this year. So you won't see me for dinner. I'll be too tired for breakfast and I'll get lunch out. See you on the holidays when I get a day off. Is that good with you, honey? Don't think so. It's time. Consistent, daily. Time spent. That's what prayer is. So Cornelius, being described as a devout person, speaks, and it speaks both to his discipline in prayer and his consistency, which seems to be pretty good and a pretty good recipe in getting God's attention. His consistency in giving in prayer got the ear of God. So not being Jewish wasn't even an issue for God. Even the rabbis affirm 
that God has always made provision for those who have a heart for him and his righteous ways. Which brings me to my second point. Hear me. And if you're not Jewish in this room, hear me. Gentiles are not second-class citizens. Let me say that again. Gentiles are not second-class citizens and should not be second-class citizens or profiled, in my opinion, in the kingdom of God. Let me say it again. Gentiles are not second-class citizens, and they shouldn't be profiled in the kingdom of God. They're not Jewish just because they come to a Jewish messianic synagogue. But they're not second-class citizens either. And that's important to note because God desires all men would come to his saving grace. Let's read a little bit here, and this is going to be a little lengthy, so help me out and pay attention. The next day about noon, while they were still on their way and approaching the city, Kepha went up onto the roof of the house to pray. And he began to feel hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a trance, which he saw heaven open and something that looked like a large sheet being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and wild birds. Then a voice came to him, get up, Cephas, slaughter and eat. But Cephas said, no, 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 sir, absolutely not. I have never, say never. That means in his whole walk to that point of his life, that means the whole time he spent with Yeshua, he never, say never, Never. ate trafe. Never ate unclean food. This is what he's saying. I have never eaten food that was unclean or trafe. So the nonsense that Yeshua made all foods clean, that's not what that verse means. And if you want to know what it means, it's simply, well, first of all, foods as defined by the Torah are not, don't come from unclean animals. Unclean animals are not food, product, for, the, for in God's economy. So he made foods clean. Foods are the kosher foods that God said you could eat. And it's more about the washing of the hands, not about kosher in that instance. I've never eaten food that was unclean or trafe. The voice spoke to him a second time. Stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. This happened three times. And then the sheet was immediately taken back up, to, up into heaven. Now, Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision he had seen because he knew one thing. It didn't mean he could go out and eat trafe. He knew it didn't mean that. So he said, sir, not, absolutely not. I'm not going for a ham sandwich. That's not going to be happening. So he's puzzling. God, what does that mean? I know you're speaking to me. I know it doesn't mean I should go out and eat unkosher or unclean food. But speak to me about what it does mean. Suddenly, the men Cornelius had sent, having inquired for Shimon's house, stood at the gate and called out, to ask if the Shimon known as Kepha was staying there. While Kepha's mind was still on the vision, the spirit said, three men are looking for you. Get up, 
go downstairs and have no misgivings about going with them because I myself have sent them. So Kepha went down and said to the men, you were looking for me? Here I am. What brings you here? They answered, Cornelius. He's a Roman army officer, an upright man and a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation. And he was told by an holy angel to have you come to his house and listen to what you have to say. So Kepha invited them to be his guests. The next day he got up and went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. And he arrived at Caesarea the day after that. Cornelius was expecting him. He had already called together his relatives and close friends. As Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. But Kepha pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up, I myself am just a man. Don't worship me. As he talked with him, Kepha went inside and found many people gathered. He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who was a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. So what do we learn from that that one phrase? Jewish people at that time did not associate with Gentile people. Period. It is just not He doesn't end the speech there, does he? He says, but God has shown me not to call any person. Say person. Nothing to do with food. He's referencing his vision. To call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. Tell me then, why did you send for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago around this time, I was at Mincha prayers in my house, when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me and said, God has heard your prayer and remembered your acts of charity. Now send to Yafo and ask for Shimon, known as Kepha. He is staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner. By the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now all of us here in the presence are in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. Then Kepha addressed them. He said, now I understand that God does not play favorites. Can we read that together? Now I understand that God does not play favorites. Friends, this is a Jewish man who never associated with Gentiles, never ate unclean food ever, is saying, I understand now that God doesn't play favorites. But that whoever fears him, say whoever, and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what people, he belongs to. Baruch Hashem. 
You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him, it's something that's just not done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came. You see, Kepha gives the interpretation of the vision of the sheet. It's not about food. It's not God now authorizing and undoing thousands of years of Torah. He's simply showing there was a mindset in that day that Gentiles are unclean. They could have no part with them, have nothing to do with them. Even though this man was regarded by the Jewish community, still it was hands off. And God seems to be shaking things up here, doesn't he? He says, Kepha, I want you to go to that man and go right into his house. God, I've never done that before. You're going to do it today, Kepha. Go right into his house and speak to them and tell them what I've shown you. You see... Gentiles were thought by some as being unclean. Matter of fact, here's what some Jewish texts have to say. The dwelling places of Gentiles are ritually unclean. Oholot 18 and 7. Most of the mission attractnate Avodah Zarah, idol worship, is devoted to limiting the contacts Jews may have with Gentiles. For example, according to chapter 2, Jews may not remain alone with Gentiles, leave cattle at their inns, assist them in childbirth, suckle their children, do business with them when they are traveling to idolatrous festivals, drink their milk or vinegar or wine, or eat their bread or oil or pickled vegetables, or, or the Gemara on this section says, or their cooked food. The Bible itself limits Jews to kosher food, slaughtered according to Jewish law, on which the tithe has been paid. In the Gemara, Sanhedrin 104a says that King Hezekiah, by inviting heathens into his house to eat at his table, caused his children to go into exile. That's the Jewish thinking of the day. But thank God that he thinks differently. You hear that? Thank God that he thinks differently. That he said that no man or person is unclean in and of themselves. Right? God doesn't look on the exterior, does he? He looks on the heart. Because it was God's intention all along to graft the nations into the Jewish olive tree and share in the inheritance of Israel. That was God's intention all along. That the nations, say the nations, would come to faith in the one true God through the Jewish Messiah. Romans 11 and 17 says, You, speaking to Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root from the olive tree. So this is not a new concept in Judaism about the grafting in. 
Rabbi Eleazar stated, what is meant by the text, and thee shall the families of the earth be blessed, Bereshit 12.1. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Avraham, I have two godly shoots to engraft on you, Ruth the Moabitess and Naamah the Amatitis. All the families of the earth, even the other families who live on the earth, are blessed only for Israel's sake. All the nations of the earth, even the ships that go from Gaul to Spain, are blessed only for Israel's sake. Now, the word blessed in Bereshit 12.1, v'nivrachu, Lancaster writes, the Hebrew word v'nivrachu, translated as will be blessed, is related to a Mishnaic Hebrew term, mavrich, that means to intermingle or to graft. Thus, one might translate the verse as all peoples on earth will be grafted into you. That's interesting. Through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But aren't they blessed, right, as they're grafted into the Jewish olive tree through the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. How can Ruth, the Moabitess, and Naamah, the Ammonitites, be added to Israel if the Torah states no Ammonite nor Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord? Devarim 23.3. The sages reason that they are no longer considered a Moabitess or Ammonite because they were grafted into Abraham, cut off from their old root and grafted into the new one. Say that 10 times. The Talmud and Rabbi Chaim Luzado view the process of being grafted into Israel as coming through conversion to Judaism but they both provide insightful parallels. The Shaliachim did not require Gentiles to go through a conversion to become Jewish. But instead, the Shaliachim accepted the God-fearing Gentile believers as spiritual proselytes through their faith in Messiah. Let's see if we can make it. <laughs> so what's the point the point is that, one, I hope you learned that little tidbit about the sheet, because that's always misinterpreted. So that's why we as a, a Jewish community are always told, hey, brother, eat the ham sandwich. You, you know, everything's good. Peter's vision. No, that's not what it meant. But it, what it did mean, and as a lesson for us, that Gentiles aren't second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, that they are to be treated equally with respect. They don't become Jews. They don't have to become Jews. They are Gentiles. Yes, they will have, I believe, Jewish sensibilities. Okay, they are going to read the Jewish word and they're going to see and get the Jewish connection. And they're going to desire to, you know, follow, you know, many aspects of the Torah. They don't have to get circumcised. If you're Gentile and you're a man, you say, Baruch Hashem. But they'll have a heart for Jewish people, a heart for the God of Israel and his ways.
They respect the Torah and God's word. They have access to the Messiah. They've been grafted into the Jewish olive tree and are recipients of its nourishment and are able to bear fruit accordingly. Wow, how nice is that? They have a covenant with God through the Messiah just like Jewish believers do. Like Cornelius in our story, Gentiles who cut covenant with God have and develop a relationship with God through the Messiah, through prayer, through the word, through those disciplines that they have now have a propensity for. So as we see from our text, God has shown me not to call any person common, that we should understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him no matter what people he belongs to. That's a good lesson for us as a Messianic Jewish community. Now, stay there in Acts 10 for a moment. Because Kepha, with all that said, finds himself in the midst of really quite a crowd, right? Cornelius is kind of like throwing like, he gets all his household and everyone he knows that's, you know, of the same heart. And he's, get in here, you got to hear this. And Kepha starts telling them about Yeshua. A Jewish man telling Gentile people about the way of salvation. Showing them the light of God. Showing them the way out of darkness and into God's glorious light and kingdom. A Jewish man. Because let me tell you what, there are, just like I said, there are sometimes, sometimes discrimination from Jewish believers toward Gentiles. There is very often discrimination from Gentile believers toward Jewish people. But yet it is to the Jewish person that all Gentiles owe their salvation. This is what he said. Here is the message that he sent to the sons of Israel, announcing shalom through Yeshua, the Messiah, who is Lord of everything. Amen. You know what has happened or what's been going on throughout Judea, starting from the Galil, after the immersion that Yochanan proclaimed, how God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh and with power, and how Yeshua went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. And then he says, 
For as for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean countryside and in Jerusalem. They did away with him by hanging him on a stake. But God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen. He proclaimed the good news. How do we get God's attention? Giving in prayer, heart for him. What do we know? That all people are important to God. There's no second class citizens in this world. God desires that all would come to faith. None would perish and all would come to repentance. But he also says, and what we could get from this text is that it's our responsibility. Friends, you know what? One of the increases we got in our expenses this week, our building insurance went up $700. And you know what half of that was from? Terrorist insurance. That we're being required to have terrorist insurance. Who would have thunk? In all my days, would you ever have thought this even four years ago? Never. Friends, we're living in a very, very dark, very dark world. But we have the light. My goodness. The light of the world, the hope of all mankind, Jew and non-Jew, is Yeshua HaMashiach. The world try to hang him on a tree and be done with him and silence his message. But God raised him from the dead. And God put the message into the Jewish nation so they could fulfill, we could fulfill our purpose as the Torah states that we would be a light of salvation to the nations, but we have to be faithful to do it. Of course, it is to the Yehudi first, and we as a Messianic Jewish congregation obviously look out to reach our people. But we also need to reach out to all people. We also need to be like Kepha, willing to go into the house of the Gentile and say, Here is what happened to us, and here is what can happen to you. A land that was living in darkness has seen a great light. Friend, you are the light of the world. Plain and simple. For you and for me, we need to keep that light burning. Keep our relationship current. Friend, if there were ever an hour in human history that we need to get a hold of God, the hour is now. If that there were ever an hour in human history that it's not time to play games with God, now is the time. If you have any doubts or questions about where you're at with God, Today is the day to get it sorted. 
I was reading something that was given to me from the leadership of the assemblies and um, many of the things written in it, various leaders were noting how accelerated the evil and darkness has come upon the world in just a few short years. If you think back two years ago, two, three years ago, and look at it today, unbelievable the difference. And the projection going forward isn't good unless, unless the people of God are willing to do something that perhaps makes them a little uncomfortable. Kepha was not comfortable going into a Gentile and associating with him so closely. He'd never done that. But God said, it's okay, you need to do it. And perhaps you're uncomfortable sharing your faith. Perhaps you're uncomfortable living as a Messianic Jew in in a primarily Gentile society. Maybe you're uncomfortable showing your love for God. Maybe you're uncomfortable or fearful that you'll be deemed as politically incorrect and uh, be ostracized by your employer or workmates or whatever it may be. But friends, this isn't, at the t- this isn't the time to worry about those things. It's a time to say, God has shown me. God has placed a message of hope in me that he wants the world to know. Friends, the world is desperately, desperately in need. I hope you see that you have the light and you have the hope within you. What could turn this tide of darkness? The light of Yeshua. So that means two things. Your light needs to burn brightly. And then you need to let it out. You can't burn brightly and just put a lid on it and provide light for yourself and for your family. You have to take the lid off and shine brightly for the world. Friends, I hope and I pray that the body of Messiah gets this before it's too late. I hope it does. You've seen it, I've seen it. You've experienced it. Now, a house of worship has to have terrorist insurance. Living in a dangerous world. But so did the first century Shaliachim, didn't they? They were used to running for their life and dodging near misses. But guess what they were faithful to do? Proclaim the message. Let's do the same. Amen? Let's stand on our feet. And I want to, there's people going to come up to pray for you. And we're going to have ministry time. If you need prayer for anything, folks, I know in this world, in our 
contact with the world, we might need help. We might need prayer. This is your time to come for prayer. Rabbi Carroll is going to come forward and Myrna is going to come forward and Gary, and they're going to be available for prayer. But you know what? Also, perhaps you're living, perhaps you're in this room right now and your relationship with God perhaps has taken a few steps back. Perhaps you're doing things that you wouldn't have done two or three years ago. Perhaps you're a little cold or dry. Friend, today is the time to get some prayer and get back to that spiritual place before God. It's time to live right before God. So I'm going to be at the keyboard ministering. If you need prayer, come forward. After prayer is done, we'll close in the ironic benediction. Um, I know there's a, a, a lunch a shower upstairs for, um, there's a shower, baby shower, right? Yeah, baby shower upstairs for, for, for Judy. But that's going to happen, listen to me, after prayer and after the ironic benediction. But if for some reason you got to go, you know, um, you could do that quietly. So please come up for prayer and uh, don't take this lightly. Amen.